now, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 15. It was good this past week to be in the Psalms again and preparing a sermon in Psalm, for, for Psalm 15, and we are always uh, much to be benefited being in the Psalms, of course, being anywhere in Scripture. But the Psalms do seem to always point us most directly to Christ and uh, teach us who we are, meet us where we are. So Psalm chapter 15, O congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, hear God's word. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Have you ever thought much about the elements and the order of our corporate worship services? Most of the churches I grew up in lacked certain elements of worship that we observe in the Reformed Church, such as corporately confessing our sins. Most evangelical churches today simply say a few prayers, sing a few songs, take the Lord's Supper, and then hear a sermon. And different churches will, of course, do those things in different orders. Well, the the scriptures do speak about the elements of worship and even lay out a general order for those elements. Now, there's not just one place in Scripture where every element and the order in the service that it should come in is discussed, but Scripture does speak to these things. Psalm 15 and its use in the life of Israel's worship is actually helpful in this, at least for a portion of our worship service and for some of uh, the elements of our worship service. It appears that this psalm was actually used liturgically for the three annual feasts that Israel was called to attend each year at the temple. Exodus chapter 23 tells us about those three times a year when Israel was to gather together at the temple once they were in the land of Canaan. They were to travel to the temple for the Feast of Unleavened Bread or what we often call the Passover, for the Feast of Harvest, or Pentecost, and finally for the Feast of Ingathering, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this psalm, Psalm 15, along with other psalms, were used by the Israelites as they traveled to and arrived at the temple in Jerusalem. Why I say this is because apparently Psalm 15 along with Psalm 24, was used as a gate liturgy. They were used as gate liturgies for those who had arrived at the temple 
after making their pilgrimage to the festival. Now, liturgy simply means the form of public worship. So you see, Psalm 15 helped to inform the liturgy, the form of worship for those who had arrived on their pilgrimage at the gate of the temple. Psalm 15 would be sung by the Israelites as they arrived at the temple, which was in Jerusalem, upon the mountain or the hill of the earthly Zion. Now, stationed at the gates of the temple were priests who had the function of being gatekeepers. They were only to allow inside the gates of the temple those who were righteous and ceremonially clean. We see a picture of this in 2 Chronicles 23.19, which tells us that Jehoiada stationed gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one should enter who was in any way unclean. And so these gatekeepers were stationed at the house of the Lord in order to prevent anyone from drawing near to God who was not righteous. That's why Psalm 15 begins by asking, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then what follows is a description of the kind of person that should be allowed into the temple gates. So it's describing the character or the kind of person that the gatekeepers should allow into the temple gates to draw near to God. Psalm 24, as I already mentioned, is very similar to Psalm 15, also providing a gate liturgy. It has the same structure even as this psalm. The structure that we find in this psalm as well as in Psalm 24, you also see it in Isaiah 33 is this, it asks a question, and then it answers that question, and then follows that with a promise. So question, answer, and then a promise. Both Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 both have these structures. And so the question of Psalm 24 is very similar to Psalm 15. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then just like Psalm 15, it provides an answer to that question. And then it concludes with a promise to such a person. Again, just like Psalm 15. Now another psalm that illustrates this gate liturgy is Psalm 118. In verses 19 through 20 state... Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And so you see here, this gate liturgy, they've all arrived from their pilgrimage, from wherever they lived, to the temple for this festival. And who would enter the gates? Who would come in and dwell in the house of the Lord or sojourn in his tents? Well, as Psalm 118 states, the righteous shall enter through it. Now, what Israelite could possibly sing such a psalm and find themselves to be 
this psalm to be entirely true of themselves. We could ask the question this way. What Israelite could find themselves perfectly righteous and therefore able to enter the gates to draw near to the thrice holy God? Well, there was no Old Testament saint who could do so. No one is righteous. No, not one, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, quoting from the Psalms. From Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And so who would the gatekeepers allow inside the gates of the temple in the Old Testament? Well, ultimately, the answer to that question is they would let in those who were repentant and who trusted in the Lord. We know this because of texts like Jeremiah chapter 7 which seemed to suggest that penitential sermons would be preached at the gates of the temple by either a prophet or a priest, who would, in that sermon, would call the people to repentance of their sins prior to entering into the gates. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah the Lord from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers." Forever. So we see here the prophet Jeremiah calling the people who were gathered at the temple to repentance before they entered the gates of the temple. Now, it is for this reason, it's for texts like these, that the Reformed have always had a confession of sin near the beginning of each worship service. We recognize that we are drawing near to our holy God. And therefore we should confess that we are sinners who are not worthy in and of ourselves to draw near to him. And this notion, I think, is is brought out in the psalm itself, in Psalm 15, when it asks, Who shall sojourn in your tent? And that word there, sojourn, tells us that we are not native residents to the Lord's tent or to the Lord's temple. It is God's residence because he is holy and righteous. But by confessing our sins, we are allowed to sojourn there. In other words, it is important to acknowledge in our worship services that we have repented of our sins and are looking to Christ, our sacrifice for forgiveness. 
so that we might sojourn in his holy dwelling place. And this occurs, this act, this portion of our worship service occurs as we corporately confess our sins. Okay, so this psalm would then be used as Israel pilgrimage to Jerusalem during their annual feasts. And as they approached the temple upon Mount Zion, they would ask, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? And the priests who were gatekeepers would respond. They would be the voice of the Lord responding, describing the kind of person who could enter the temple to draw near to God, which is what we find in the next part of the psalm. Now, different scholars break the following verses up in different ways. Some like to break up the description, this description of the one who can enter the gates into ten different parts in order to match the Ten Commandments. And that would be wonderful if that's what we had here, and I certainly do believe that this list is related to the Ten Commandments. But I don't think that we have ten statements here that match one for one the Ten Commandments. This list is not meant to be an exhaustive list. The fact that the list in Psalm 24 as well as Isaiah 33, plus we could look elsewhere in Scripture, uh, all have different lists than the one that we have here. And I think this is proof that the lists are not meant, any of those lists are meant to be exhaustive. And so here in Psalm 15, the list of qualifications for a person that can dwell with the Lord is not an exhaustive list. It is not a one-for-one correspondence with the Ten Commandments. So then, how do we or how should we organize this list? Well, I'm convinced that there are six different qualifications here that come in couplets or what we might call parallel statements. And parallelism is, is common in Hebrew poetry So I think there are 12 statements here which make up six couplets with each couplet containing an independent idea. I think you'll see what I mean as we go along. And so here's how the question of who can dwell with the Lord is answered. First, it is someone who walks blamelessly, which the psalmist describes with a parallel statement, its corresponding couplet, and does what is right, who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And so you can see how the second statement adds to the first in order to establish one whole idea. And the point here is to describe the person's character as a whole. Not only is he blameless, not doing what is wrong, but he also does what is right. It's not just some passively not doing certain things, but he's actively doing what is right. He actively pursues righteousness. In fact, James has his own way of describing these two things more concretely in his epistle. In chapter 1, verse 27 of the epistle of James, he says this. Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That has both of these 
ideas present in it. You see, the first is to do what is righteous, to care for orphans and widows. And the second is to walk blameless, to keep oneself unstained by the world. And of these things, James calls them religion. This is religion that is pure and undefiled. And so that's what's in mind here in Psalm chapter 15. There's our first couplet. Now the second says, And speaks truth in his heart, which is coupled with, who does not slander with his tongue. Now this couplet tells us about the person's speech. Which includes not only what this person says, but what he does not say. He is a person that speaks truth from the heart. Not so much that the heart is the source of his speech. That's certainly true. Uh, But that would simply mean that what he says is always accurate or right. And that is a good biblical quality to have. But what's actually being communicated here is that the person speaks what is actually on the heart. In other words, it's trying to speak of a person's trustworthiness. You can actually depend upon what this person says because the heart is cooperating with the person's speech, which makes what he says always trustworthy. That's what he does. That's who he is. Someone who is trustworthy. What he does not do is go around slandering others with his tongue. He does not falsely accuse his neighbors, nor spread malicious rumors about them, nor speak any kind of gossip about them, all of which would bring harm to his neighbor's life. Here's the point. The person who comes to dwell with and praise God in his holy temple does not use that tongue to bless God, but also to curse others. Now the third couplet says, And does no evil to his neighbor, which is coupled with, nor takes up a reproach with his friend. And I think Matthew Henry describes this well when he writes, He does no evil at all to his neighbor willingly or designedly, nothing to offend or grieve his spirit. Nothing to prejudice the health or ease of his body. Nothing to injure him in his estate or secular interests, in his family or relations. But walks by that golden rule of equity to do as he would be done by. End quote. I think that states pretty well the idea that's communicated here. Now the fourth couplet says... In whose eyes a vile person is despised, which is coupled with, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Again, you can see how the second statement explains the opposite of the first in order to bring about one individual idea. And the idea here is that the person respects and values those who have true godly character. He does not look up to want to be like or find a role model in those who are worldly. Such persons may be highly esteemed in the world, but only because they have attained things that are worldly 
and which are perishing. They have gained these things often enough through ungodly and sinful means. And the one who honors such vile people does not desire to be in the Lord's temple. Or to dwell on his holy hill. Their eyes are on the things of this world, not upon things that are above. And so the one who shall dwell with the Lord is someone who respects and looks up to those that are godly. Those who are like God. In the fifth couplet, being in the second half of verse 4, says, Who swears to his own hurt, there's the first statement, and does not change, there's the second And the idea here is that the one qualified to dwell with and have communion with the Lord is a person of integrity. They keep their oaths, their promises, even if the circumstances surrounding those promises change and make it difficult to keep those promises. That's why it says, to his own hurt or to his own harm. He does not change from keeping his promise, even if keeping that promise brings the person harm. And this is a person of integrity, a person who keeps his word. The final couplet says, Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And the concern of this couplet is that the person cares more for justice than he does for money. It would be unjust, you see, for a wealthy person to make money off of the poor and the destitute. That's why Israel was commanded in their civil laws, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, not to charge interest on loans to other Israelites. They were allowed to do so with foreigners, but not to fellow Jews. Now, they could loan money. They were not being forbidden from loaning out money, but they were not to charge interest so as not to take advantage of their brothers who were less well off. And the second half of the couplet also has in view justice because it deals with providing evidence or making judgments in civil courts. Someone who would take money to convict an innocent person clearly loves money more than they do justice. And this is not the type of person who shall sojourn in the tent of the Lord. Now, having looked at the kind of person that can dwell in the house of the Lord, we can plainly see that there has only been one man who perfectly fulfills these qualifications. And that is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, the author of the poor man's commentary on the book of Psalms wonderfully states how all of this is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Listen to his words. Reader, 
Pause as you read the several several characters given of our Jesus in these sweet verses and see how fully they mark his person. And at the same time, how all his saints fall short of him. Who but of Jesus can it be said that he never slandered his neighbor, nor did evil to him, nor took up a reproach against him? Who but of Jesus could it ever be said that a vile person is uniformly contemned without respect of persons, and he that feared the Lord was always honored? Who but of Jesus could it be said that he never swerved from his kind purposes, though it was to his own hurt? And changed not, however personally he suffered for it. Of none among the fallen sons of Adam, though renewed by grace, could such accounts be strictly given. But of Jesus, all these features of character, yea, and a thousand more, mark his divine person. Yes, thou holy one of God, thou and thou only, when thou wert reviled, reviled not again but wast led as a lamb to the slaughter. Thou didst show no respect of persons, but didst choose the poor of the world, rich in faith and heirs of thy kingdom, when sending the rich empty away. Thou didst not change thy blessed purposes when thou hadst once undertaken the redemption of thy people, though by becoming surety for another thou didst smart for it, And every joy of theirs in thy great undertaking cost thee pangs and blood. Hail, blessed Jesus, thou alone art worthy of ascending and fixing thy eternal residence upon thy Zion, which thou hast justly earned. End quote. It's a very beautiful way of stating that this psalm is strictly speaking of Christ. Beloved, Jesus Christ is most certainly the person that this psalm directly speaks of. It is a prophecy. It is a messianic psalm. And he is the one who has obtained the promise at the end of this psalm that he who does these things shall never be moved. After his death and resurrection, Christ ascended to the heavenly tent upon the heavenly Mount Zion. And from there, beloved, he shall never be moved. But he did not do this just for himself. But also for the sake of his elect. He, of course, is the ultimate Gatekeeper, being the one who holds the key of David, who opens the door, the gate, in which no one can shut. You see, when he ascended to the heavenly tabernacle, he sprinkled his blood as an atonement for his people's sins. And that word there, blameless, in verse 2, he who walks blamelessly, is the very use to describe the, the word used to describe the animals that were to be offered as sacrifices on the altar. It can mean or can be translated, you know, to be complete or whole, to be without blemish. And that's the kind of animal that was to be chosen for sacrifice, one that was perfect, whole, without blemish. 
But when referring to morality, it takes on the meaning of being blameless, being without blame. And that is what the animal sacrifices pointed forward to, the blamelessness of Jesus Christ. He truly was the perfect Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sin of his people. Now, because this psalm is first and foremost about Christ, we cannot look at this list of qualifications as something that we must accomplish in order to earn our salvation and entrance into the heavenly gates. The one who wishes to have communion with God in heaven, to sojourn in his tent, to dwell on his holy hill, must look to Christ alone with the eyes of faith. And to repent of their sins. I recently heard that one of my family members who was raised in a Christian home now claims to still believe in God. But doesn't believe that Jesus is the only way to God, to heaven. But beloved, only Christ was perfectly righteous. And since you can never fulfill such righteousness in your own life, you must trust in him alone if you wish to enter the gates of heaven and have fellowship eternally with God. And this is why Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see, beloved, the law cannot give life. Why? Because the law is weakened by our flesh, meaning our sinful Flesh prevents the law from acquitting us. Rather, it shows us that we are sinners and therefore it pronounces us to be guilty. And so God did what the law could not do by sending his son and condemning him in our place for our sins. In other words, only Christ fulfilled the qualifications, the requirements found in Psalm 15 and throughout the rest of the scripture. Yet, they are also fulfilled in us who believe because Christ's righteousness is credited to us. That's why verse 1 of Romans 8 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, having said this, Paul also wants to point out that now that we are in Christ, we walk by the spirit and not by the sinful flesh. Therefore, down in verses 7 and following, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see, beloved, though we cannot fully keep the requirements of Psalm 15 in this life, we who are in the Spirit are no longer hostile to God and can submit to His law. So although the requirements of Psalm 15 are not met in us perfectly in this life, they are in a measure to be measured, I mean to be met in us, for we now walk in the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, In perfection this holiness is found only in the man of sorrows, but in a measure it is wrought in all his people, By the Holy Ghost. And so the psalm must first be applied to Christ. For it speaks of him directly. But afterwards we must apply it to ourselves. And this means that we must first see how we are not like Christ. For we fail to keep the holy requirements. Listed in this psalm and throughout scripture. Therefore, it should cause us to repent and to look to Christ for our salvation. And then secondly, we must look at these requirements anew and be found walking in the spirit. We must seek to please God by keeping these holy requirements all to the glory of God. To him be all praise and glory, now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most holy God, we thank you for sending Christ, our righteousness, that trusting in him and being united to him, you might see us with his righteousness. May we never trust in our own righteousness, our own merit, but rather always looking to the foreign righteousness, the alien righteousness that we possess, which is none other than Christ's imputed to us. And Lord, may we rest upon him then to be justified With regard to your law. But Lord. May your law also be a guide to us who have been regenerated. Who now walk in the newness of life. And may it teach us how we should live. That we might demonstrate our love for you. And the love for our neighbor. We ask these things. By the power of the Holy Spirit and through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Amen.